This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 538, where we talk about a whole ton of stuff with commercial and residential revitalization of downtown with an awesome guest, Katie Neeson. But like we're doing this because we want a sense of freedom of your life back. You want to live a different life. So if you just like have more problems and hate what you do, like just stick with your job. And even though like my first two investments, if I started over again, I'd probably pick a different path knowing what I know. Like it was I learned so much that I wouldn't exchange it at all. What's up, everyone? My name is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, at least for the next few weeks until David takes over as host. And I'm going to spend some more time surfing. Uh, today's podcast, this is the show where we, uh, it's our mission to arm you with the tools needed to jump into real estate investing so you can reach that financial freedom faster and make working a nine to five job optional. I'm here today again, of course, with my bestie and co-host, David Green. What's up, David Green? How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, actually, in a really good mood. The David Green team went on a tear. So we have a Southern California division and a Northern California division, and the SoCal team's on fire. They have 14 houses in contract. Woo. A month ago, they had like four. So uh, that's up. going, yes, absolutely. And that gets me pumped up because every single person we help get a house under contract, I look at like we just made a future millionaire with the that's way cool. that things are going. So I am in a very good mood, and I'm happy. Thank you for asking. How about you? What's going on in your world? Man. Man, uh, I just got done with a five-week vacation, so uh, that was a long time. I went to Disney World, and I missed you, man. I don't think I told you that it was five weeks without Brandon is harder than it sounds. It was a long time, but yeah, man, I missed you too. Actually, so what did you do? Everything. Yeah, we we live, I, I did a week in Coeur d'Alene. I did a, in Coeur d'Alene for AJ Osmond's conference, the self storage one, and then I did BPCon, and then after that did Disney World, then after that I did Disney Cruise, and then after that I spent a week in Washington. Oh, and I stopped in Houston to go check out the new. We got like a seventy. $1 million property under contract in, in Houston. And then we raised all the money for it in like a few days. It was for being on vacation. It was a very uh, big month. So bought more real estate than in my entire life combined in like under contract in one month. So crazy. I like vacation. So a couple years ago, we released a journal at Bigger Pockets called the Intention Journal. And it's not one of our best selling like books. Like it doesn't sell anywhere close to what Burr or rental property investing does. But this thing really changes a lot of people's lives. In fact, our guest today uses it, uh, and she talks a little bit about it today in the show. So my encouragement for you is if it's not this journal, I don't care what journal you use, but like a success-based, goal-based journal that you fill out every day and every week has been such a huge monumental tool in my life. And so I want to encourage everyone to look into that, whether it's the Bigger Pockets one or something different. Uh, check it out. Ours is called the Intention Journal. Uh, you can get it at biggerpockets.com slash store. Especially because we're coming up to a new year, which yes. is when everybody really, like, that's when you should be drilling down to come up with your plans. I'm going to be hosting a free webinar for anybody that wants to come and just talk about how I set goals, the way I set goals, the format I use, and why they're important. So if you're following me on Instagram at davidgreen24, you'll see whatever the information is when I posted about that because goal setting is massive, man. It's like, it is literally programming your brain to go get you what you want in life. I love it, man. I love it. We'll keep, uh, keep delivering the goods. Uh, speaking of goods, we've got a good show today with Katie Neeson. So Katie is a, a buddy of mine from down in Texas. 
who does a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, everything from commercial redevelopments, like taking old buildings and remodeling them to building townhouses, to flipping houses, uh, buying rentals. And she goes through her story, a lot of like, she got into like fourplexes and a lot of stuff that you're looking to do. And then she found out very quickly she hated it. You're going to learn about why that is and some of the lessons behind that. Uh, we go into how to find deals off market, how to talk to sellers. We go through a lot of just tangible, tactical stuff that could change your business forever. So I think this is going to be one of those shows you're going to remember for a long time. And it might just impact the the type of investing you pursue. Because uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you're going to hear this and be like, that is super cool. I want to do it. So I'll say trigger warning on the show. It's very easy to get shiny object syndrome with stories like this because they're so cool. So you're going to love it. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right. Now that said, let's get to the show. Katie Neeson, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Awesome to finally get you on here. Oh man, it's so awesome to be here. What an honor. Thanks. So let's go into your story a little bit. I mean, you and I know each other a little bit, but let's introduce you to the world of bigger pockets. So, how did you get into real estate? You know, I grew up as an entrepreneur. As a little kid, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but both of my parents were in the real estate industry in the 80s and early 90s in Texas. So, I was pretty sure real estate wasn't going to be a very good option for us. And went into the corporate world, wondered how I could start a business. And then like many others, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And really it put context around my mindset about money 
And it brought to the realization that our problems in the 80s and 90s weren't about real estate. They're about our relationship with money and like just caught fire about real estate and just had a piece like that's the direction I need to go. So within a couple of weeks, I went and bought a condo. And my deal was, I don't know if y'all have ever Googled Robert Kiyosaki's name. But he's got just as many haters <laughs> as he has yeah. fans. Yes. So I had no idea. Like, is this a fraud? Is this guy for real? So I decided I wanted to do a test case to see if it worked. So I found a $17,000 condo in my hometown, low income. Wow. Had a tenant that was paying $550 a month in rent. And I even borrowed the $17,000 from family and bought it. And it worked. That's cool. So what year was this? 2006. Wow. Okay. 17,000. What town is this in? Is this Texas, right? Bryan, Texas. Bryan, Texas. Bryan College Station, home of Texas A&M. That's how most people know it. <laughs> I'm assuming you still can't buy condos for 17,000 anymore. You know, I think it'd be hard to find, but in this particular condo, when I took my husband to see it for the first time, the reason it was a special price is it was a gated community, but the gate was always broke. But as you turned and went down the street to get to the gate, it was lined with fourplexes and they were all boarded up with plywood and vacant. And my husband was like, what have you done? And I'm like, well, this is what opportunity looks like. <laughs> so we had a drug problem in the area and the cops went in, kicked all the tenants out, boarded it up and basically sent letters to the homeowners and said, you're responsible for what goes on in your properties. So yeah, so that made it a really good price at the time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So by the way, you, you brought up your husband. So for those yes. people who are at BPCon this year and you saw an actual real life cowboy walking around, that would be Katie's husband. I think he's the most cowboy looking person I've ever seen in my life. It's Don't, great. Now he's going to listen to this. His head's going to get big. <laughs> but yes, that is who he is. <laughs> he was not yeah. dressed up. <laughs> no, yeah. He is He is a true, like authentic cow. He's what all the cowboy like wannabes wannabe is your husband. So that's yes, awesome. Yes, the tax return says working cowboy for his job. <laughs> yeah. Is it really? That's funny. Yeah. I didn't even know that. He is legit. Not just in the look, but in the in the career. That's great. Yes. yes. All right. So, so about that first deal, what went wrong on that one went right? You know, I got to learn so much from that. What went right is it validated my concept or it validated that it was possible. But like you would expect with a low income one bedroom condo, there was lots of turnover and I had lots of entertaining but stressful tenants. And, you know, one quit paying, looked him up, he's in jail, went over, check it out, doors busted open. But I kept it for a long time after I rented it for a while and then I owner financed it. And that went well for several years. And then they stopped paying. And so I got to foreclose on it. But what was really exciting was I got to go to the courthouse steps and be on the other side. So I went ahead and had my attorney show up and I just wanted to be like a person in the room just so I could get that experience. And then at the end of the day, no one bought it on the steps, but someone called me who was there the day before and bought it. And so it was just really cool to learn like all the steps and see it all the way through. But it was a challenge. I wouldn't have bought it again. I didn't know about HOA fees. We had assessments right after I bought it. They redid the outside. So, you know, like all the things that you could think of could go wrong with the condo, it did. But it was still a pretty cheap learning experience. At the end of the day, I made money. So, All right. All right. Well, what came next? 
So after that, I kind of took a break because I had a real job and then jumped into fourplexes. Like I wanted to create cash flow and I convinced my business partner and mother <laughs> to go on this venture with me. And we bought some fourplexes out of foreclosure. So that was 2010. So there was quite a few foreclosures going on. And we bought them vacant. And the first one we bought, we went to Colorado, like the day after we bought it, came home and there was water running down the driveway Oh no! because there was a freeze here, pipes busted, but we were going to renovate the whole thing anyway. So if it was going to happen, like it was a good time, but you know, like the water was shooting up from the faucet. And so the sheetrock on the ceiling had all caved in, like it was a mess. But we fixed it up. There were three bedroom, two bath. We were going to do HUD tenants because the security of the government paying me, like I still thought I liked that. And we fixed them up. We got tenants in there. They were three bedroom, 800 square foot fourplexes. And we rented them for $850 when everything on the, else on the street was written for 550 because that's what HUD was willing to pay. And I just don't think people knew that. They just assumed you could get what everybody else did. Cash flow was great. Put tenants in there and hated it. Totally hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I mean, like you're making all this money. I mean, you're way, renting way above market, it, it seems. Why would you hate that? Hated the property management part of it. I hated, you know, you're like, oh, you'll never get those calls. Yeah, I got one. Oh my God, the place is on fire. We tried to turn the light, uh, the light on, you know, light bulb popped and it turns out it was just the light bulb was dead. <laughs> so it needed to be changed. And, you know, there's a, it's tiny. There's 800 square foot. So again, fourplex, lots of turnover, just hated the maintenance and the, you know, bigger TVs than I had, nicer equipment than I had. Like it kind of made me cynical, felt like we were lied to a lot. And, but what we really loved, we loved fixing them up and, you know, we did them nice. We had colored walls and, you know, like we did it like we would want it. And so we love that part. So we said, you know what? At that point, we'd already bought three fourplexes. So we said, let's just sell these to investors and let's start flipping houses. And that's what we've done for the last 10 years. And that's kind of been our niche. And that's what we really loved doing. And um, so we've done that for the last 10 years. Uh, yes. Landlord and especially landlording with lower income tenants where you're dealing with everything, it really can make you cynical, can it? Like you just get so like, it can. like, oh. I just, I don't know, just the number of stories I have of like that phase of my life where I was just in it, like dealing with the phone calls and all that. That's why I like, you know, as soon as I got out of that, I was like, oh, there's like a whole nother world to this real estate thing besides just being the low income landlord. Exactly. So I was happy to leave it and I didn't like, like I became skeptical of everyone, <laughs> you know, like yeah. not just my tenants. Like I just didn't like the path I was going down. You know, I think that's important to highlight that we often Here's what I hear, especially from newer people. Every real estate deal gets reduced down to what is the ROI on a property. It's as if the analysis starts and ends with what is the ROI my spreadsheet will tell me. But those of us that actually own real estate understand there's much more art to it than science. And one of the big pieces that I've learned I need to look at and I frequently coach people into is if you buy a property that you think gives you a good ROI but makes you hate your life it will cost you so much money because you'll stop investing. You'll stop pursuing deals. You'll stop learning. You'll stop growing. You won't find the path that you're supposed to be in. You'll just quit and say, this isn't work. I'm going to do something else. Would you mind speaking just a little to those people that are maybe new? They have one or two properties and they're these like spreadsheet trolls that just, they go right into it and they can't get out of it. And they, it's all they talk about, but the actual, like, do you enjoy doing this means a lot as far as the ultimate success you're going to have. 
Totally. Like I am still a spreadsheet troll. Like that's why I got in it was to create cash flow. So I totally get it. And then when I was like, oh my gosh, I can make so much more than anybody else on the street. And everybody told me I couldn't. I spent hours in the HUD office making sure I asked all the right questions and understood. But like we're doing this because we want a sense of freedom of your life back. You want to live a different life. So if you just like have more problems and hate what you do, like just stick with your job. And even though like my first two investments, if I started over again, I'd probably pick a different path knowing what I know. Like it was, I learned so much that I wouldn't exchange it at all. So it's better that you just go and do it and learn that you don't like it and then pivot and go a different direction than worry that you're not going to like it. So you never even start. That's one of those I want everyone to rewind the last 30 seconds and just hear that again, because that's that's so powerful of like you don't know what the right path is until you start walking on one. Right. Like you don't know, like because you just when I got into like real estate, like I didn't know I'd end up in mobile home parks. And then when I got into mobile home parks, I didn't know I was going to end up with a certain type of them and which ones I like, and which ones I don't. I mean, that first deal I bought was 50 units in Bangor, Maine, like. I would not buy that today. There's no chance I'd buy that today. It was way lower income, way smaller, way too many problems, way too uh, small of an area. I didn't know about those things. So until you jump in and just do it, you won't have the perfect solution. And so, so many people are waiting for this perfect solution and the perfect path to be laid out in front of them before they make any action. But I think that's just the wrong approach. Yeah, it was the right next step for you, even though you wouldn't do it again. Yeah, created the path. Yeah, I love it. All right. So what came next then? You started flipping houses and found good success in that? Yeah. And we loved it. And we, you know, they say, don't get emotionally attached to your real estate. Well, I don't know how to do that. Like if we didn't <laughs> love it, we totally wouldn't be doing it. And we overimprove them. But what we really fell in love with is our downtown was revitalizing. And there were lots of businesses starting up and we started flipping houses near the downtown. So there were these old cool houses and people wanted to be closer to downtown. So, you know, like it just caught momentum. It felt easy. It felt light. And we just loved improving them. And then people would reach out to us because we won't list them until they're staged because we don't want anybody to tell us they don't like our light fixtures or our tile. Like, like it and buy it or don't, but we don't want to get in between. And so we started, you know, having people saying, as soon as you have something come up, let us know. And so we really loved it. And it kind of became our identity. And it kind of inflated our ego. But when we reflected back, like the reason we're doing this is to generate cash flow. (laughs) And so there was kind of a big pivot point that happened probably about 18 months ago. And it was the culmination of a number of things. One was COVID hit and the idea that we know real estate's a cycle. My mom, who's my partner, has been in it for 45 years. You know, we've seen the cycles, but the idea that it could dry up overnight you know, was like, to me, it was frightening and almost like we'd been living this kind of fake life in real estate. We thought we were investors, but the reality is as soon as we quit flipping, we'd have to go get a job because there was no money being generated. So that happened. And we were general contracting our first commercial ground up development. So it's me and my mom, general contracting a 20,000 square foot building. And even though we had done our houses before, we had lots of different subs because they didn't transfer. And it was kind of like every morning going to the job site and getting in the fetal position so people could kick the crap out of us and solving problems for that day. And during that time, our pipeline totally dried up because all we could focus on was getting that project off the ground. Then 
I'm watching little old Brandon over here who owns a few rentals and does this BP podcast. And he comes on, I don't remember which one it was, but it was during COVID when we had way too much time to reflect on life. And you're talking about your hockey stick growth. Like you just woke up one day and all of a sudden you were successful with all these mobile home parks. And I realized. It just happened one day. It was weird. I just woke up and they were there. Yeah. That's exactly how it happened, right? And and it just hit me that I had used the excuse, even though I knew I needed to shift, I didn't know how. And I used that as an excuse that like it would reveal itself, you know? So I was waiting to see how am I going to shift away from this? And I was using that as an excuse not to do anything. And so I didn't have a circle of strong investor influencers here, people who made the next step feel easy. So I just didn't do anything. And then you were on that podcast. I don't know. It may have been the Jason Breeze one. I can't really remember. But the hockey stick growth you were talking about, I was like, that's it. Like, Brandon's a freaking open book. I'm just going to do whatever he did until I can find a better path. (laughs) It's so... (laughs) You were like, I read Vivid Vision and wrote a Vivid Vision. I'm like, me too. I have it up on my wall. And then I joined the Jason Breeze Mindset Academy. Everybody I know that's successful says they have a mind coach. So I got a mind coach and I did that, got the intention journal. Uh, you know, like I just started doing, just taking steps. And what I learned is kind of what you referred to earlier is that, you know, you can be moved for me. It's God because I'm a Christian. Like it's or a ship. It's hard to turn a ship if it's sitting still. But if you just start moving, it's easy to guide and pivot. And even though I experienced that early on in my real estate career, I didn't realize it when I was stuck in the middle again of basically a cap and not knowing how to break through. And then um, the Maui Mastermind came up and I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go meet the types of people I need to be around and I'll figure out like how to make it work later. And it was a big sacrifice. My daughter we moved our oldest off to college and I missed it because I was in Maui, but it was worth the ability to get around the types of people that like just fed my soul and was doing what I do. And so did that in like the last 18 months in a blur, we quit worrying about how are we going to pay for these properties? And we're like, let's just get the properties. We'll figure out how to pay for them later. And we hired an integrator. (laughs) We were like, you know what? We can't run construction sites and fill the pipeline at the same time. So we had an annual offsite meeting. My mom and I went like out of town for the weekend and we're like, what are our goals? What do you love doing? What do I love doing? And we, we mapped a path that made sense for us. And we started just filling in the holes. And I mean, it has just skyrocketed in the last 12 to 18 months because of that. And it was just taking action. That's it. It doesn't even matter what action I took. I just started doing it. I love that point about a ship that's sitting still is hard to turn. Maybe think about when you're trying to ride a bike, if you're not moving anywhere, balance is incredibly hard. But when you're going, balance gets easier. And the faster you go, it actually gets easier. You know, like I remember when I was first learning how to ride a motorcycle, I had a concern that like going faster would be harder to control it. But no, when you're going really fast, it, it's you're never going to top it over. You can't. And that's a great point that a lot of the time when you're just sitting there analyzing a deal and analyzing a deal and analyzing a deal, and you're never actually getting deeper into the process of what it's like to own real estate, it's like trying to balance on a bike that isn't moving. You're never going to feel like steady. It's only when you start making progress and moving that you start picking up those nuances. I think that's fantastic advice. So Katie, I want to jump into the change that you went through. You were doing these, the single family flips, and then you started working that other one. And then all of a sudden you just ramped it up over the last couple of years. I'm wondering, like, was there a point where you were just like, 
I'm afraid. Like I like I don't want to go bigger because I'm scared. Or were you just pretty like power through? Like oh yeah, I got this. And how if it was scary, how'd you overcome that? Yeah. So I live at odds with myself all the time. So I am fiercely inter- independent to a fault. And I am scared of everything. And so every step that I take, I encounter fear, just like not knowing if Robert Kiyosaki was a fraud. So every next step is always full of fear. What I like to do is just figure out worst case scenario, what would it be? And like, could we live through it? And then I get my motivation knowing that I'm doing more than most people are willing to. Like, there's just something about like, if I know I'm doing something that somebody else won't, like I use that to motivate me and drive me forward. So, you know, we kind of decided in 16, we need to start slowly accumulating cash flowing assets that we like. We already know we don't want to do low income. We don't want to do managed houses. We want it to be able to have property management. And so we said, let's just buy one cash flowing asset a year and an asset that we love. Like, I want to be able to take people by and say, hey, I own that. And, you know, we didn't get that from the fourplexes. So the first one we bought was an old boarded up building on Main Street. And I mean, we just looked up who the owner was. We contacted them and we bought the building, put tenants in it. And that was our first cash flowing asset. And then the next year we did, we decided to go outside and we bought a bakery. <laughs> like to actually run or just like somebody else ran the bakery? Yeah. So it was three partners. We, the, uh, the third partner was the operator. So she ran it. And then we did like social media and the bookkeeping and kind of the back end. And it gave us a great realization of what tenants in our downtown that's being revitalized, like what they go through. So it was a good experience, but we realized it was taking too much mind space. So we sold it. So it's kind of like a year of wasted, not getting cash flowing assets. And so we were just collecting them one at a time. But then when I had that pivotal moment and that epiphany, I was like, we need to do, we just need to do this faster, but we didn't know how are we going to finance it? How are we going to manage them? I mean, we're two women now in commercial construction building, you know, mixed use buildings. And so the main thing that's always helped me is I try and find someone who is really smart. So like when we were our GC and our first single family, it was because our general contractor was too busy to do it. But I had used him before and he was like, we'll help you. Like if you need help, if you need subs. And so he was there to coach us. When we did the commercial project, I did a consulting agreement with a construction company. So, cause I knew I wouldn't know what I was doing, but there was someone I could call and say, Hey, come over here. Help me look at this. What am I doing wrong? So I just try and surround myself with people who have already done it that kind of make the next step feel easy. But like you never overcome the fear. Like today, if I could get myself all worked up about just the pipeline that we have ahead of us right now. And so it's just a matter of realizing that you're trying to make a better life for yourself. And just like a W-2 job, you might lose your job. You may have to change your career. It's no different in real estate, but at least we're loving what we do. And we feel like we have ownership in it since we own it. So it's really no different. How did you find that consultant that you hired for the commercial project? It was a contractor that had built some of our first developments when we didn't GCM. It was the same thing. And they did commercial and they did some developments and they did some residential. So it was just because we were already in that world. They were also investors and general contractors. So we connected on a lot of levels. And I mean, really, I don't know why he did it. I mean, I think people in real estate who are successful want to help other people in real estate who are successful because the reality is he probably shouldn't have. You know, like he was my GC, now I'm my own GC, but we still invest in deals together. But the reality is, is if you're out there doing stuff, like there's people out there who want to help you get to the next level. 
That's cool. I, I want to dig into the, de- the development stuff here a little bit, but before I do, I want to just point out like a kind of a lesson that I see in your story. And that is, you know, we, D- David and I say a lot, this idea of follow the fire. In other words, like something fires you up. Some people right now are just fired up about crypto. Then you should, if you're fired up about crypto, then go, go dig into crypto. It, but like, there's something that just resonates in you that with that development of like the downtown, the old buildings, the drive by. And somebody might be listening and going, no, that's stupid. You can get way better return by doing this thing over here. Right? No, you couldn't because you wouldn't be passionate about it. You wouldn't be willing to suffer through all the pain. Because it's not your fire. And so I love the fact that you you jumped around a little bit and you found something. You're like, this is the thing. Because it's not about necessarily making, like the goal of life is not to make as much money as humanly possible, right? I think we all would agree to that. And so if you're doing something you don't enjoy, and this is the point I want to make, is if, if you're doing something right now you don't enjoy as a means to an end that you will enjoy much further down the road... I think that's faulty thinking, right? Like you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have an incredible life right now doing something that does fire you up that also leads you to a better life later on that that fires you up then. You don't have to trade crap for now for joy later. I'm reminded of that quote Steve Jobs once said. I'm going to pull it up here because I really like it a lot. It was, yeah, here it is. I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. So it's been one of my favorite that's quotes. So good. Yeah, isn't that great? Like, and so I don't know. That's my encouragement to everyone listening to this is like, don't necessarily judge something for is this the highest ROI in my life right now? But is this something that brings me life right now? And I can use it to get towards uh, a different life or a better life or whatever later on down the road as well. Absolutely. There's definitely better ROI projects out there than what we do, but they definitely give us the most pride. So, Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. All right. So let's talk about the development stuff a little bit. Let's say I want to get into what you're doing. I want to go and buy an old building. These are commercial properties, right? So I want to buy a commercial property, maybe a, you know, three, four, five tenant old crappy building. And I want to make it nice. What do I do? Like coach me, Katie. Okay, so what we have found is the path of least resistance that also meets your passion is a better place to be than always fighting uphill. So find out from your city. Every city has a master plan. And in my experience, it's better to do what the city wants you to do than try and do what you want to do if it's against their will. So they had already invested a lot of money downtown. We knew they wanted to grow downtown. And so we started looking, what can we do? Our passion and our skill is we can put heads and beds downtown. So the development pattern of past or of today is commercial follows rooftops. So you go build five or six subdivisions, all of a sudden, all the strip centers and the commercial buildings start going in, the restaurants, the stores. But when you're revitalizing a downtown, it's in reverse. The first thing that comes back is they try and get shops and boutiques down there, but there's nobody living down there. And so those boutiques cannot live on events alone. They need someone to roll out of bed and go eat or shop there because it's the most logical place for them to go. And we feel super passionate about that. So our goal is how can we put as many heads and beds into the downtown? So we look for buildings or property that we can just redevelop from ground up that we can put heads and beds. Now, we did some studies to find out like what do people who live downtown, like what do they want versus we're in a college town. 
So college students don't want to live downtown because we don't have volleyball nets and pools. And that's not our target. The people who want to live downtown, which is so nice in development, the amenity is the downtown. So I don't have to spend money on gyms and I don't have to spend money on all the extra amenities. I get to just build the building. They walk out the door and the amenity is already there. And so the first thing to do is identify what does the city want? What do you want? And then just start scouring and looking for a building. Once you find it, you're going to set up a meeting with your development services people in your downtown. You're going to have a group meeting. They're going to have the fire marshal there. They're going to have... I don't even know what development service people, teams. Is that a group of people? Yeah, kind of. So when you go and build something in your city, there's two sides. One is like the permitting and the inspection people. So like if you just buy a lot and build a house, you're going to deal with those people. The development services side gets that lot ready to be built on. So they're the ones who say, yes, you can divide the land. You're going to need to add water and sewer. So they're the like, before you're ready to build, they just get the land ready to build. So they're going to bring in city engineers, the fire marshal, the development services, probably somebody from permitting. And you're just going to sit down. And what we have found success is you want to share your vision with them. You want their buy-in. And so we'll take renderings or we'll take pictures of buildings like we want to create this. We've learned, you know, if people live downtown, they don't want three by five windows in a sheetrock box. They want wood floors. They want open ceilings. And so we try and have imagery and the city gets excited. They're like, yes, this is what we've been wanting. So our very first development downtown was a townhome project. It was actually low income housing that we modular houses that had been brought in a long time ago. And we were like, you know what, let's buy it. And let's see if we can't do something else with it, which I don't recommend because we didn't know lot sizes. We didn't know any rules, but we knew worst case scenario, we could just sell it and it cash flowed as a head house. So we go into the city and we tell them what we want to do. And they were like, so excited. I was nervous. <laughs> I was like, their level of enthusiasm means they may be dumb enough to do it. And so, but what came out of that is, so in a lot of downtowns, they have really wide right of ways because that's how they stop the spread of fire. Back in the old days, they separated buildings. So you'll have like 80 foot right of ways with, you know, a 20 30 foot road in the middle of it. So the city said, Hey, what if we release some of that land to you? So instead of building five townhomes, you would be able to build seven townhomes. And we were like, what? And they said, also the lot's not deep enough to meet standards, but if you guys will build this, we'll give you exceptions to those rules to make sure that you're able to do it. And so it just opened our eyes that when you're doing what the city wants, they will work with you to get it done. So the first thing you got to do is sit down with them, find out if they're going to support your project when it goes to planning and zoning and when it goes to the council. And if they are, and you guys see eye to eye, they really are helpful in making sure that you're successful. Yeah. So this is interesting because in my head, I've always envisioned like working with the city planners and all that. It's like a very like I got maybe it's just because I'm on Maui right now and that's how it is on Maui. It feels like but like it's like you got to fight these people who their only hope in life is to deny everything you want to do in life. Like all they want to do is deny. But what what it sounds like and, and it makes a lot of sense is like, no, they want this. If you can get them on board and get them excited about it, and you can cast your vision like they're going to support you and help you. And this becomes way, way easier. And so. Yeah, that's just an interesting way to like, kind of a, a frame shift in my head that I'm doing right now is like, maybe it's not such a animosity thing, but it's a partnership. Yes. And I'm pretty sure the city doesn't listen to bigger pockets. So I'll share this no. with y'all. <laughs> 
I only talk good about them behind their back. Like (laughs) they are still a government entity. They still get their paycheck, whether they delay my deal, whether my deal passes or not. And I remind them of that every opportunity that I get. So it is still a difficult process, but if your passion crosses what they're trying to get for the city, they want you to be successful. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Linneman, and experts from Walker and Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups. So fire up the Walker webcast on your favorite podcast app or join live on Wednesdays to see Willie interact with his guests. Plus, you can always catch the replay on demand afterward. Stay ahead of the curve with insights for life from the Walker webcast. Learn more and subscribe to the Walker webcast at walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. And be sure to follow Walker and Dunlop on all your favorite social media channels too. That's walkerdunlop.com slash pockets. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Maybe we can take a minute here and uh, usually we save the deal deep dive for the end of the show, but maybe we'll throw it in here because I'm curious if we can go through some numbers of something that you've done. So why don't we hit the deal deep dive? Deep dive. 
Yeah. So let's go into it. Perfect. Like, do you have a project, like some kind of development project we can dig into the numbers on? Yes. All right. Perfect. So I'll start with, uh, we'll fire a bunch of questions at you. Let me find my list of questions here. I should know this by now. It's not like I haven't done this a million times. Number one, what kind of property are we talking about here and where is it located? Okay. So the very first one we did was a commercial building and it was on main street. It was like a row building, which means, you know, it shared walls with each building on either side. It was literally just the exterior brick walls, a newer roof that had been put on dirt floors and a cistern inside the building. Oh, wow. So it was completely gutted. What's a cistern? So it's what collects water. So it's, it's circa oh, okay. 1890s. <laughs> and so it's how they used to collect water to then be able to have water inside the building back in the day. <laughs> All right. So that was, you had a shell, like a shell of a building, basically. Here. Yes, just a shell of a building. And basically the reason it was dirt floors is I'm sure it was a wood raised floor and the roof had rotted out at some point and the wood had rotted out and the city made some owner come in and clean it all up and put a new roof on it. So I see. Okay. All right. Number, number two, then number two, how did you find this deal? So we knew we wanted to try an office in downtown. So we just started walking blocks and we would write down the address of any building or land that looked distressed that we thought we might be interested in. This particular building was the only unoccupied boarded up building on the most developed block in downtown. So we went ahead and wrote it down, but we were like, if that building was to be had, it would have already been had. But we went ahead and wrote it down and then looked up on CAD to see who all the owners were of those buildings. What's CAD? So CAD is the county appraisal district where they list property values and owners. And we got their names. You know, they have addresses on there, but you never know. So we got their names and just started Googling them. And the one of the building that we were interested in, found, turns out the guy was an Aggie. So he's a fellow alumni from the university I was at. He lived in Houston. So he was remote about an hour and a half away. And he only owned the building a couple of years. And his email, his work email was right there on the internet. <laughs> so I just shot him an email and said, hey, fellow Aggie, real estate developer. So you own this building. Would you be interested in, in selling it? And really thought he'd probably never respond. Yeah. And he did. So... All right. So I guess next question then, how much did he want? Like, how, how did that work? What did he want? What did you end up buying it for? So that was tricky because it wasn't for sale. So basically he said, you know, we had plans to build a restaurant. His daughter was graduating from the university. She was going to run this restaurant. But he was like, it was at a time he was in the oil field industry, which I learned on the Googler, and that it was a tough time in the oil field world. So I was like, maybe that's my hope. And he's like, you know, we've had a change of heart. We're not sure if she's going to do that. So we want to make a decision what to do with that building. And I said, great, what do you want for it? Well, he would not throw a price out. So we tried and he wouldn't give us a price. And so it was hard to know. I mean, it's dirt floors and we had never built downtown to understand the cost, but we just did the best we could. We estimated what we thought the renovation budget would be, and we backed into it. And we offered him 225000 And then he, I don't think I'm supposed to go on. No, <laughs> please, no. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, okay. you're good. You're good. <laughs> you're, you've already committed. You might as well finish now. And so then he countered at 260 and we settled on 250 And at the time, had no idea if that was a good deal or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that kind of covers the negotiation piece then. Yeah. Anything else in there? Here, I'll add a little caveat. In Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference, he covers exactly how most negotiations go like what you just did. So knowing that, I don't know what the percentage is, I guess like 80% of them, you're going to see somewhere in the middle. You can exercise quite a bit of control over what price you end up on just by understanding that. Is there anything you want to share with the listeners like 
Was this a plan that you knew you were going to hit on 250? Well, we definitely wanted to give room for negotiation because we wanted him to feel like that he won too. But it was trickier on this one because we really, there are no comps. I mean, we're in a, you know, in downtown, there just aren't even that many buildings. But I will tell you, we've read Never Split the Difference, and it has helped tremendously on our flipping side of the business on negotiating deals. But yeah, we went in a little low so that we would have some room to go up. Yep. Brandon? Just curious, you have the experience doing the same thing? Uh, I mean, yes. I'm not a great negotiator, honestly. I'll admit that. Like, I even that was the difference. Like, I've read it, and I'm I still don't put most of the stuff in the practice. Uh, that said, I do recognize that people always want to split the difference. So I just like I lean into that, knowing that it's kind of like a monopoly. So if I play monopoly, like probably the thing I use more than anything else when I play monopoly is somebody will have like let's say they have boardwalk, and I really want boardwalk. I'll usually start by saying some absurdly low number, right? Like I I'll give you 200 bucks for it. And I was like, no screw you. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want? And they're like, well, the thousand. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I would, I would have paid him a thousand right then. Right. But like, I kind of anchor it to that price. That's about the only negotiation strategy. I'm, I feel like I do is just price anchoring, but side note from the person who just said he's a bad negotiator, you're like a wild (laughs) savage at monopoly negotiating. I think psychologically, we maybe need to dig into why that comes out when you're playing monopoly, but not in real life. You know, one thing that we do on all of our properties that I think actually came out of that book, and I didn't even really realize was a tactic, but we always go into, you know what, like we have to make a living, you have to get what you need out of it. And there's very little chance this is probably going to work out. So I don't want to insult you with an offer So I'm not sure this is going to work. And we always try and get them to say, well, just tell me what it is. So we've already grounded them and it's going to be shockingly low. And we actually did do that with this building. I mean, we, from the day I emailed this guy until we got it under contract, six months passed, which at the time felt like an eternity. It was real. Oh, we're going to do it. Oh, we've decided my daughter's going to do it. And no, we can't take that pride. I mean, like it was a roller coaster ride, but we did ground it with, you know, it's probably not going to work because at the end of the day, I doubt we're going to actually see eye to eye on this deal. So at least it gives them a grounding point. And that actually is something I do do occasionally, especially in negotiations. And I'm a big fan of, which is the like, I don't know if this came from never split the difference or what, but like this idea of like, oh yeah, that's probably not going to work. You almost like you want the other side fighting your battle for you. Like you're, no, I think we can make this work. Like you want them like helping you by always being the negative. It makes them go positive because people know that negotiation is back and forth. You say one thing, they're going to say the opposite. So yeah, by saying like, yeah, this probably won't work or yeah, you probably wouldn't even be interested in that number. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I can pay a hundred thousand, but that's probably ridiculous. Thanks for bringing that up, David. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, David. I forgot we did that. I knew that there was more to that story. So yes, thank you for sharing that. It's funny because I will sometimes on our real estate team, the agent will come to me and say, hey, this is what we got. What should we do? And I'll say, here's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to counter with this. They're going to go to their client. They're going to come back and they're going to say that. When they say that, you're going to say this. And like, I will almost paint the yeah. next five <laughs> steps of how we go back and forth and say. And you're right. I'm sure like 100% of the time, like, because like, yeah, psychology is so predictable. Yeah. Yes. And they think that I'm this like magician that reads mine. It's human beings are much more predictable than we want to think. And we all have huge egos. And that's really when you're negotiating what you're catering to. So thank you, Katie, for sharing. For everyone listening to this, like the key to negotiating is not trying to find their weakness and smash it into the ground and just bleed them for every. It's really just how do I make their ego feel good about giving me what I want. So once you came to the price that you came to, how did you fund this deal? So we used debt and equity on the 
debt side, we got just a commercial loan from a local bank and they did a two-year interest only. And then it rolled automatically into a 20-year amortizing note with the five-year rate maturity on it. Uh, Can we break that down for those people who don't know what that means? So two-year interest only, which means... So that gave us time to build it. And during that time, we only had to pay interest on our loan. And because we were building, we were taking draws. So we only paid interest on the outstanding balance. So it built as the loan increased. That's cool. All right, then the 20-year AM or amortization means? So they based our payments on paying the entire loan off in 20 years. So the longer that is, the lower your payment is. So you want it longer. 20 years is not great, but we had the comfort of knowing if we can't refinance it, we already have an option for permanent financing. No, that, yeah, that's very cool. I like the fact that it rolled right into it. You didn't have to go and refinance it and hope that you can get a, it's almost like a burr. Like there are banks that will do burr loans. So like you, you buy it with a, with an interest only loan kind of thing. And then like almost like a hard money. And then it automatically rolls into a long-term loan. It takes a while, a lot of that risk of what if I can't refinance it? Right. So, all right, so that's cool. So two year interest only 20 year am. And then you said five year, what was that five year? It basically matured in five years. So at the end of five years, then the bank would call the note and we could either redo the note or get financing somewhere else. Yeah. And by the way, everyone listening to this, like this terms are important. If you want to like get into any type of real estate, obviously this is more common for commercial when you're talking about the 20 year versus a 30 year for residential. But if you want to look like, you know, what you're talking about when you go to a bank, just say like, do you offer any interest only periods or uh, do you do a 25 year am or a 30 year am or, you know, asking these questions will make you look like, you know, what you're talking about. So don't like shy away. Cause, Oh, these are big words. I don't want to deal with it. Lean into this. Cause this is the stuff that matters when you're getting into real estate, even the small stuff this helps. So, all right, keep going. That was the debt side. On the equity side, we brought some money in. We, my mom and I kept 10% for bringing the deal to the people. So we got 10% for no cash in exchange, basically. And what do you mean you got 10%? So we're going to have multiple owners in this project and everybody's going to bring money to the table and we're going to divide the ownership out based on how much each person brings. But we get 10% even if we don't put a dollar in. So there's only 90% left to divide amongst the people who are going to bring equity is how we structured this deal. I know this is your first that you did like this. Do you feel like that was overly generous of you? Because I feels like that was overly generous of you. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like even like in my, in Open Door Capital, like my syndications, we start at 30, 70. So we take 30 for being the GP and we give out 70 to our investors. And that still gives our investors a phenomenal. I mean, we just get a, we just sold our first fund and gave our investors like a 35% IRR, like per year, like 35% return each year. Like, yeah. And that's at 70, 30. You gave 90% away. So. And. I was scared to death to ask for the 10, like that I was asking for too much. (laughs) So yeah, definitely a lesson learned. I know people do 50-50. So yeah. Anyway, keep going. There's a whole lesson in there we could dig into on why we all shortchange ourselves and don't value our our skill set enough, but keep going. And it's part of its ignorance. But the other thing that we did is we were scared to death that this thing could go bad. So we wanted to make sure it went bad for as many people as possible. So (laughs) we brought in our general contractor and our architect and they used their fees as sweat equity. So it was less cash that we had to bring to the closing table and we didn't have to pay them for that money. They basically earned their right into the deal. And then we still went and got a couple of more outside investors. The renovation budget was like 500,000. We paid 250. The whole deal is 750,000. I write a seven quarterly checks for this one deal (laughs) because we have so many hands in the pot. So that was another lesson learned, but hey, it got the deal done. (laughs) 
I got the deal done. Like we said earlier, you don't know what the right path is until you start walking down one. Exactly. And that was 80% loan to value. So we brought 20% of that to the table. Okay. All right. So then I guess next question, what did you do with the property? Then you fixed it up or you, you remodeled it, you developed it, I guess. Yeah, we renovated it and we put two retail stores down below and then three offices on the second story. And in my very humble and unbiased opinion, it is now like the most beautiful building in downtown. We hired a muralist, paint a big mural on the wall. Like it's beautiful. Let's go. What, what shops are in there? We have a retail boutique in the front and then we have a cafe in the back. And then we That's have cool. two architects and us. Our real estate office is the office with no windows. The lowest rent, smallest office is the one we took for ourselves. It's the only one we could afford. There you go. Office <laughs> hacking. Yes. That's great. Yeah. All right. Next question. What was the outcome? So we refinanced at the end of 2019 and it had appreciated significantly. We pulled 100% of our money out of it. The distributions on it are about 45000 a year. So we're not going to get rich on the deal, but it's infinite returns because we have zero money in the building. So that's kind of the outcome. Mm-hmm. You kept your investors in then, right? Like even after, so now they're just getting, they're getting an infinite return. They love you. And yeah, who knew I could have bought them one. out? Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's another option. Yeah. All right. So last, last question then. What did, what lessons did you learn from the deal? I mean, I learned like, don't bring so many people in. It's a lot of paperwork on the back end. I learned that again, I didn't think we would get this building and we asked, so don't presume that you know what the seller wants before you've even asked them. And I cannot tell you once we started posting on social media that we got this building. I mean, like many people started reaching out. I've always wanted that building. How did you get that building? I was like, uh, I contacted the seller. If you wanted it, how did you not get that building? Right. And so I learned it's important just to take action. I mean, I guess those are probably two big lessons learned. And it proved that you could do burr on a commercial property because that's effectively what we did. And it's really the model we use for most of our ground up developments now too. Curious for you, this is completely unrelated to the deal deep dive, but because I'm sure you probably don't love having all these partners. Have you thought about selling a 1031 into a bigger property, letting some of them bring their gains into that deal. Some of them keep their gains. And if you get like, let's say that you get a property four or five times bigger would then have enough cash flow to support having a bookkeeper. So you didn't have to do that. Yeah. It's a great idea, David. Do you remember how we talked about how we are emotionally attached to our real estate? I can't remember if we talked about that or not. <laughs> we own the coolest building on Main street, but yes, there will be a way in our future. We're actually going through that with another building right now that we wanted to never sell. And we're like, it would probably be fiscally irresponsible not to sell it because it's even better than the one that we're in. I just sold my Kurt Cobain house. The house that Kurt Cobain, like his, his childhood home. Yeah. I said I would never sell because it was an emotional thing, (laughs) but finally the, like the nostalgia of having Kurt Cobain's very first home or first two homes, it was a duplex. It played out. (laughs) was surpassed. Well, it was surpassed by the frustration of dealing with low income tenants in Aberdeen, Washington, that I was like, I'm done. Like I'm done with that one. So we sold it and we got a great price for it. I made a couple hundred grand and dumped it into a, actually a condo that I'm buying here in Maui, I should close next week. So yeah. Well, let me ask you, David, I always thought if you 1031 and that's because we're just now learning about them and never had deals big enough. Well, they were always flipped. So 1031 wasn't even an option. You don't have to keep the same ownership structure in place. I was under some false pretense that those owners went with you. (laughs) I think you do, but there are ways around it. Like things like ticks and other things like that. Or you could like buy out people ahead of time. There's always always a way. way. There's always a way to figure this out. Yeah. There's always a way through it. 
My guess is you would if you sold everybody gets their gain and then they can choose if they want a 1031 that into a different type of structure. The answer is always ask your CPA how can I do this yeah. versus yeah. I'm in the market for a good one if anybody has recommendations. <laughs> Aren't we all? If you are a good CPA, contact me cuz I that's the next business I want to start so we can bring it to the masses because man, it can be challenging. Yeah. Please. Yeah, dude, yeah. Do that. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. All right, that was an awesome deal deep dive. I, I, I like, I tend to get like very like shiny object syndrome, so I always tell myself no, don't do it. But like, I really want to do what you're doing. I love the idea of taking old, like, especially old commercial properties and redeveloping them and like the downtown stuff. That's so fun. Like, I love that idea. So I really have limited my number of investors, but you know, maybe I can work you into a deal or something sometime in the future. <laughs> Maybe we'll partner on one. Exactly. That's that's my better role, giving people money, and then they can do what they're good at. And, and I'm I good at taking surf. money, so this works. It's a match made in heaven. Exactly. I never thought I'd find somebody like you. This is amazing. Katie, let's buy a bunch of cows and hire your husband yes. to be the asset yeah, manager. Absolutely. Now you're living his dream, too. <laughs> There we go. All right. So let's, let's, we're going to start taking this towards the close here. Uh, where, where are you at today in terms of like, what do you own? Like, what's your portfolio look like today? And then what have you got up to? And uh, yeah, where are you headed after that? Yeah. So our investments basically are in three buckets, the flips, which we have three of those going on right now. We still do those. Just keep going to, if they come along, we have developments of mostly houses. So like townhome developments where we increase the d- density, almost all of those are for sale, but we will rent them and hold them. But generally, we sell those two. And then the third bucket is our ground-up developments. And those mostly are boutique apartments or mixed-use buildings where we'll put commercial on the bottom and like 20 residential lofts or however many we can fit on the top. And those we want to hold for cash flow over the long term. And so today we have two office buildings that are multi-tenant office buildings. We have mixed-use building that's 20 residential lofts and three commercial spaces we have two townhome developments with 15 townhomes under construction right now. And then we have one mixed-use building that's in permitting, fixing and break ground the next 30 days. And then we have three more properties that we're going to develop into apartments or mixed-use buildings that are in the design phase with an architect. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's neat. So where do you where do you see yourself wanting to head with all this? Do you want to just keep scaling this up? Yeah, you know, ultimately, I think I just want to sit back and collect checks. I mean, that's what I told myself when I started this. So I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if one day, like, we'll maybe keep a couple of properties that we just love too much to sell and invest in syndicates. And, you know, like, I don't know. We're going to do it until we love it. And then when a clear path shows its way and we need to pivot, we'll do it. But in the meantime, we're just love what we do. So we're just going to keep doing it. All right. By the way, how are you financing all these these projects now? Is that all kind of the same model of like bringing in private investors and such? Yes, we've gotten a little smarter, so we try and keep a little bit more. And on our like uh, townhome developments, those are 50-50. We bring in zero money. We do the deal, we manage it, we sell them. The investor brings in 100% of the money, and then we split the profits 50-50. On the apartment ones, you know, it's a little more traditional. We keep as much as we can and still get returns. And I learned something new from an investor about, you know, you go in where maybe you only own 20 and they own 80. And then once the construction's done and it's leased up, it flips, they get 20 and you get 80. So we actually experienced that model with the one we're fixing to break ground on for the first time. 
And uh, yeah, so I'm really still exploring all the different ways. Like one of my goals in my intention journal every day is by the end of this quarter, I have to find three new ways to underwrite or finance a deal. So I'm still exploring best ways to do that. But we have a handful of investors that provide most of the equity. And then we invest in every deal as well. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for uh, for sharing. I, I love your story. I love your journey. And I'm excited to see where you kind of end up. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We're not quite done yet. We got the famous four. I just want to tell you that. Yeah. I really like hearing from you. So this is cool. It was, it was great to have you out in Maui too, for the Maui masterclass. It was, you were a huge uh, contributor to that and people loved you. So thank you. I would tell you of all the things that I did on my list, I think that's the one that I can see the most direct benefit from. So thank y'all for hosting it. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks. I love to hear it. You know what I kind of think we should do? I kind of think we should make David do one high pitched intro. Oh, look, he's so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'll leave it up to you, but it's my suggestion. Brandon sort of peer pressured me into that high pitch quick tip I've had to do over all these years. <laughs> it's not natural. It's amazing every time. <laughs> I'd rather, I want to do it in Batman's voice, but Brandon's always like, let's see how high we can make our voices every single time. Quick tip. There it is. <laughs> it. All right. Speaking of high pitch voices, uh, even though we have a sound effect for this, we're still going to do it. Any- we, I don't know if people know this. So even though we have a sound effect that comes in for the famous four every time, David and I still, even to like Kiyosaki and Jocko Willink, we still do the high, like when we're recording this, the high pitch famous four, four. <laughs> every, every time, every time. So with that it. said, it's time for the famous four. This is the famous four. It's the part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week. And uh, Katie, I'm excited to dig in. So first question, what is your current or all time favorite real estate related book? So I'm going to give a real estate related book that deals with the type of investing we do, urban infill development. And it's Strong Towns, A Ground Up Revolution by Chuck Marone. I never heard of it. I love new book recommendations. That's great. Uh, Yeah, I like when it's a new one we haven't heard of. Thank you for that. What is your favorite business book? I mean, the one that's had the biggest impact on our life for the last 18 months is definitely Who Not How. I mean, you got to have that to be able to scale. And we think about it every step we take now. That's great. I'm actually reading the the second book they wrote together, uh, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. So Who Not How was the first one they wrote together. Second one is called The Gap and the Gain. Have you read that one? I haven't heard about it. I didn't realize it was already out. Is it good? Yeah, it's out and it's incredible. It's uh, I actually like, oh, you got it right there. Yeah. Nice, David. Yeah, I actually like it more than Who Not How, I think. I mean, I loved Who Not How, but I think I like it even more. Yeah. It was phenomenal. So Okay, I'm going to grab it. Well, it is. I'm, I'm listening on Audible right now. And the Audible is cool because he actually interviews. So Ben Hardy, who wrote the book, really from Dan's advice, um, on the Audible one, he actually interviews Dan after every chapter and kind of like goes deeper into it. So it's kind of what they did on like David Goggins' book. What was it called? The Can't Hurt Me? Whatever. They did the same thing on that one. Yeah. It's actually a good idea for bigger pockets books. We should do that when we write a book, David, is record the audio book as like a, everyone, every chapter just have like an interview with us. It's a good idea. Keep that in mind. We'll work on it. All right. Moving on. Little known fact, they actually named the gap of the game after Brandon and I. He is the gap and I. <laughs> Are, you flexing? Are you really flexing right now? Are you showing us your guns? Next All thing right. you know, he's going to have his shirt off on Instagram, <laughs> posting pictures. Yep. That's, well, you know, 
a form. No, that will never happen on Instagram. But if you watch Bigger Pockets YouTube channel, you will see a former podcast host who showed up with his shirt off and showed off a little bit. Yeah, I think that's coming up here in the next. Uh, let's see, what episode is this one? I don't know. It's it's on the one with uh, Noah and Jeff, who you also know, yes. Katie. Yes. Noah and Jeff. Yeah, Mr. Josh Dorgan just randomly shows up with his shirt off in my office, which was pretty funny. Oh, so. that couldn't have happened with two better guests. Yeah, no, it was amazing. It was amazing. And Josh is looking ripped. So that said, moving on. Next question, David. George. Next question, Katie, what are some of your hobbies? Well, I have two almost grown kids. So my biggest hobby is spending as much time with them as they will allow to make memories. Right now, they're both really big into showing cow horses. So I play horse show mom on most weekends and they show horses we raise. And so it's just fun to see the joy that they get out of competing on the horses that they've trained themselves. But when we're not doing that, I like to explore cities in Italy and Snow skiing. That's kind of the family vacation. That's cool. Brandon, when you're describing an environment that's not urban, what would you call that? <laughs> I don't know where you're going with this, David. The r- r- rural? rural? <laughs> are, you, are you making fun of my inability to say rural? <laughs> I'm giving another homage to Josh Dorkin, <laughs> yes. ripping on you for like the first 100 episodes that rural was. That's how you know the real mm-hmm. OGs of the podcast, if yeah, they remember. It's rural. You don't even need the second R. Just rural. Rur. All right. R U R. Rur. I like the rur places. All right. Very cool. Last question for me. The rur burr. All right. The last question for me. What do you think separates successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? You know, I think it's hard to stereotype everybody into one thing, but. I think what no, it's I, not. Yeah, it's not. So let's do <laughs> yeah. it anyway. Okay. Let's do it anyway. <laughs> I think with my kids, what I see the most is, and it probably applies across the board, is people who are not willing to or able to take ownership in their place in life. And once you give up your ownership or once you give up your ability to change your position to outside forces, like your mind's powerful, it'll believe it's true and, and you'll get stuck right where you're at. Wow. That's so good. So good. So good. <laughs> I'm going to take that and make that an Instagram clip later. Throw it up on TikTok. Put some music behind it. It'll be <laughs> it'll be perfect. I love it, Katie. Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, super informational. And I hope this helps a ton of people. I know it will because you're onto something there. That's a really cool strategy. I think a lot of people will, will take and run with. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you. It was awesome. I can't believe I got to be on the OG with the boys. Loved it. Yeah. There you go. Well, appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, Katie, do you remember what episode we ha- did where I yeah, coached you? it was you? recent five something. <laughs> I don't remember what the episode number was. We'll see if we can put that in the show notes. But if you want to hear more of Katie, she was on one of the episodes I did when Brandon wasn't here, where we went through three different investors and we walked through your personal situations and coached you. So it's very nice to have you back. How did that deeper. voting go? Weren't you trying to compete to see who did the best coaching with Brandon? We probably won, right, David? Oh, was there? Was there? <laughs> I didn't know. I that, wasn't, wasn't going to tell was Brandon. A, I did not know there was a competition here. <laughs> Everything's a competition. Was, uh, yes, everything is a competition. Oh. <laughs> Actually, speaking of that, it's funny. Uh, so I was gone for like a month on vacation back like two months ago or whatever. When this episode airs, it was like two months ago. Anyway, people like were going crazy on YouTube saying like, yeah, I know there's a beef between Brandon and David. There's obviously a problem between Brandon and David. And I don't know why they're so angry at each other. And I'm like, <laughs> I was on vacation. I was at Disney World. I didn't want to record 10 episodes ahead of time. No, you just want to so say, anyway, people, go do yeah. something productive. Buy some yeah, real estate. Do, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm actually flattered that I've hit the level of fame that I'm now having rumors <laughs> said about me that are true. People can say more things like that. I'm actually like, wow, like the people are making stuff up. I made it. 
<laughs> you made it. That's funny. All right. Katie, yeah. we there's, no the, there's no beef. There's no beef. The only beef is what Katie's husband is. <laughs> Cooking uh, up, baby. Rank, rank, yes. All those cows that are being herded, wrangling up. Yeah, what kind of cowboy is your husband? Let's let's end this show with that question. What kind of like is he is he cows? Ask me ask me the question again. What kind of cowboy is your oh, husband? Oh my goodness. So he's a working cowboy. So that means it's like a day working type thing where he oversees cattle for large ranches all the way across the state. They are horseback, they rope them, they cut them, they you know, do all the cowboy way of life. Different than a rodeo cowboy that goes into the arena and competes and so yeah, he's a working cowboy. I would imagine those working cowboys don't care much for those show cowboys. <laughs> I tell you, they can't get along with the farmers, they can't get along with the rodeo cowboys. They got the right way of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cowboys are just lonesome. I don't know. I feel like there's been a few songs written about that. Yeah, it's very romantic and um they're very it's almost like getting stuck in junior high <laughs> and never getting past it. Everything you wear, every way you look, it's all very important about who you are. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. All right, Katie. Thank you. David, get us out of here. Time to close up shop. Thank you very much, Katie. This is David Green for Brandon High Pitch Turner signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.